0: Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my great delight and my sincere honor to be in dialogue with Dallas Michelbacher. We will be discussing his newly published book, Jewish Forced Labor in Romania, 1940 to 1944, published in Bloomington, Indiana by Indiana University Press, 2020. Dallas is an Applied Researcher at the United States Holocaust Museum. Dallas, it is an honor to be in dialogue with you today.
1: Thanks, I appreciate you having
0: me. To begin, please tell us about yourself. What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today? Can you tell us a bit about your upbringing and anything about yourself that helps us understand, the personal relationship you have to your academic work?
1: Right. So I grew up in in Georgia. Um, spent most of my life living in the South, which is kind of ironic given what I ended up doing because there aren't large Jewish communities in the area where I grew up. So I didn't grow up with a lot of Jewish friends or anything like that. Um, uh, my original area of interest in terms of historical research was the the period of the World Wars, which is, I think, you know, it's what every kid who's interested in history grows up reading about. But um, that just ended up being the direction I took with my studies once I was uh, actually studying history as an undergraduate. It wasn't my original plan. I was originally a math major, actually, but that didn't uh that didn't work out. So I ended up becoming a history major, and uh, yeah, I worked on Russian history and German history, and ended up coming around to the period of World War II, uh, and eventually to to
0: Romania. Wow. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? So the big thing was that this was just a gap in the,
1: the historiography. I think like every doctoral student is looking for something that's, every historian, you know, after they finish their doctorate too, is trying to find things that haven't been written about where you can actually have, you know, something original to say rather than, you know, writing the thousandth book on the Battle of Gettysburg or whatever. So I, I thought it was a good opportunity to talk about something that had been really neglected in the, uh, in the historiography up to that point. And um, this, was, this has always been an area of interest for me, like the interface between kind of economic policy and ideology and military policy and stuff like that. So I thought that this was a good topic that kind of met at the confluence of all of that. And so I was really trying to explore kind of how that relationship between uh, racial anti-Semitic policy uh, and other aspects of policy in Romania developed during that period, basically.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story does this book tell?
1: So the primary themes I'm focusing on, like I said, for one, the interface between economic policy and uh, and anti-Semitism, discriminatory racial policy, but, you know, also kind of on a more zoomed out scale, I wanted to look at the phenomenon of forced labor in general. Uh, so the, the main things I'm focusing on, in addition to the policy side of it, is obviously the experiences of the forced laborers themselves, how their experiences vary depending on where they were, what they were doing, who they were with, uh, so that, you know, we could see the whole kind of tapestry of the, the event basically. Um, so I focused on both like the institutional side of it, what the government was doing, what they were trying to achieve with this policy, how it fit into the larger policy of discrimination against, against Jews and ethnic minorities, and then also how it fits into the broader narrative of the Holocaust and the Holocaust in Romania.
0: Thank you for sharing. What was your aim in writing this book?
1: So like I mentioned I wanted to obviously there was a gap in the historiography that I wanted to fill basically because nobody had really written on the subject of forced labor in Romania in English there are a couple of articles that were written in Romanian and there's one collection of translate or not translated excuse me edited documents in in Romanian uh, that, that have been published in the last 10 years or so, but there's really not much on this in English at all. It gets a little bit of mention in the major books on the Holocaust in Romania, like uh, John, the late John Ancel's books and Radu Ioannic's book, which he just released an updated version of. They talk about it, but it's not their primary focus. So there was kind of a gap in the history historiography that I wanted to fill. Uh, it's also kind of a gap in the historiography of Jewish forced labor in general, because there's a lot of work on Jewish forced labor in Germany, obviously, and then in, you know, other places like Hungary, there's a decent amount of research, but there wasn't for Romania. So I wanted to see how Romania fit into that larger picture as well. Um, so I thought that this was a good way to explore both of those areas.
0: Why do you think that gap exists? Why do you think Romania has been overlooked?
1: well in the in the west at least part of the problem for romania and for a lot of the eastern eastern europe is that the archival materials really weren't available until you know 20 25 years ago uh it's not like you know germany where the you had access to at least some of the records almost immediately after the war you people weren't able to really start working on this in the west until the fall of the iron curtain essentially and uh in cases like romania that are you know probably more obscure than somewhere like Poland or the Soviet Union. You don't have people who have the language skills, who have the background knowledge to really even recognize that that gap in the historiography exists. So it's kind of just a ne- little little bit of a neglected area of study in general. So yeah, so that there ended up being a gap in the historiography there just because nobody had really gotten around to it, I guess, essentially.
0: What was it about Jewish forced labor in Romania that first piqued your interest?
1: Well, in addition to the fact that nobody has written about it, the biggest thing was that nobody had written about it despite the fact that this was a policy that affected a lot of people. Uh, at its peak, there were about 105,000 or so people performing forced labor in Romania, which is a little over a third of the Jewish population of Romania proper, not including the occupied so territories in the Soviet Union that Romania occupied, just in Romania proper. We're a little bit under 300,000 Jews, so this affected about a third of the entire jewish population but nobody had really you know studied the policies that affected these people or what their experiences were like basically so that and it also helped that there is a reasonably good source base for this it's not as good as some other cases like germany and hungary but there was you know a good well, the primary documents to work with here that really hadn't been touched yet and i think any historian would tell you that when they come across a sizable collection of primary documents that nobody's worked with yet they that, you know, they immediately think, hey, this is an opportunity. This is, a, you know, there's, there's probably something to be done here.
0: Mm. Can you tell us about decree law number 3984? What did it stipulate? So
1: this de- decree law 3984 was also known as the law on the military status of the Jews. And this essentially was part of an overall larger, policy of discrimination against Jews that's referred to as Romanianization, which essentially means removing Jews from all areas of public life, all areas of society, government, the economy. It was similar to what happened in Germany after the Nuremberg laws. Um, Romania got started on this process a bit later, but it was a similar idea of removing Jews from these areas of society and replacing them with non-Jewish romanians hence the term romanianization uh, but in this and in this case this was dealing with the military specifically so it excluded jews from the military and said that in the event of a war then jews would be required jews of military age who would otherwise be called up for military service would be required to perform forced labor or what they referred to as quote work in the community interest uh as a basically a way of fulfilling their national service without being allowed to serve in the military essentially and there were similar policies to this in places like hungary and bulgaria as well uh so this was it It also kind of illustrates the problems of romanianization though because in this law there's already a loophole built in that's mainly applies to you know specialists like engineers and doctors and veterinarians who were um who, who were basically not replaceable. There just weren't enough non-Jewish doctors, engineers, veterinarians, et cetera, to fill the military's needs. So they created an exemption for those people and they would be allowed to serve essentially with the equivalent rank without, uh, without official discrimination because the Romanian economy depended on them and that would kind of foreshadow some of the problems that would develop with forced labor in Romania later on.
0: Can you give us an overview of the internment camps that existed in Romania, who built them, who were the detainees, how many detainees were there, why were the right. camps built, when were they built, how long were they in existence, how many camps were there?
1: Right, so there were the the internment camps in Romania were created at different times for different reasons between 1939 and 1941 primarily uh these were officially under the umbrella of the ministry of internal affairs of romania uh rather than the military and the they they did the main groups of people who were detained initially prior to the war were uh communists uh members of other undesirable political groups particularly after the uh the attempted rebellion by the Iron Guard. Members of the Iron Guard were put in there uh, after January of 1941. Um, there were also Polish officers who fled to Romania after the German and Soviet invasion rather than being interned by the Germans or the Soviets. But since Romania was a neutral country, they had to intern them, so they built a camp for that. Uh, so there were 10 major internment camps, and they had between 500 and 1,800 uh prisoners in those camps, about uh, an average of about a 1,000. And some of them, particularly these camps that were built in 1941, primarily to hold Jews who were evacuated from the area near the front lines, uh, which was a policy that was put into place right when the war with the Soviet Union started. Essentially, because the Jews were considered untrustworthy, they didn't want them in the army's immediate rear area, so they evacuated them to camps that were mainly located in southern Romania. Uh, these camps were mostly dissolved uh, at the end of 41, early 42. Uh, some of the other camps, like the largest internment camp at a place called Tirguzhu, which was primarily for political prisoners, communists, uh, many of the future communist leaders of Romania, like Gheorghe Gheorghiu Dej and Nikolai Ceausescu, were interned there. Uh, th- that camp stayed over, open for the duration of the war. So it, it depended on where the camp was, what the purpose was, essentially.
0: Can you describe... The various schedules and itineraries of jewish forced laborers
1: right so here i think it's important to distinguish that there were two types of forced labor units in romania one which was referred to as the local detachments these were units of mainly younger men under the age of 21 and older men over the age of 40 as well as men with children young children at home these units Worked within their city of residence. And the people working in those units were allowed to, at the end of the workday, they were allowed to go home. They would go sleep at home, eat dinner at home, and then come back the next day for work, basically. Uh, on the other hand, you had the so-called external detachments. These were generally some, t- you know, construction units that were working on things like roads, railroads, canals, mining. Stuff like that outside of the cities where the Jews were taken from their cities of residence and transported to these labor units. And they lived and worked at or near their work site, basically, and didn't return home until the winter when it was too cold for work to continue. So in most cases, the itiner the daily itineraries were somewhat similar aside from the differences in the living situation. Most days they would work sun up to sundown or thereabouts with a break for lunch in between. Uh, Commonly, this was something like 6 a.m. to 7 p.m. or something like that. So it it varied depending on the time of year, just depending on the amount of available daylight. And then what happened after they were done working depended on whether they were in one of these local detachments or an external detachment.
0: Can you tell us about the various roads battalions (laughs) that your book describes and documents?
1: Yeah, so the roads battalions, which were under the uh, General Directorate of <clears> Roads, <throat> excuse me, were the either the largest or the second largest employer of forced laborers throughout the duration of the forced labor system. These were generally large units with two, three thousand people divided into several companies of usually about five hundred people. Um, this is the, similar to the structure of the other inter- external labor detachments, like the roads battalions or the railroad battalions excuse me under the state railway agency or the military engineering battalions that were building canals and fortifications and stuff uh the, this was print in keeping with the overall idea of forced labor as a replacement for military service generally these were roads that were being built for military use basically these were roads from that generally connected important areas major cities towards the front so in in The most notable case probably is the construction of a major highway from that connected the cities in eastern Romania to the occupied Soviet territories running from the the city of Roman in Romania to the city of Chisinau in present day Moldova. So it was generally that type of thing, roads that were intended principally for military use. Um, And as was the case in a lot of the external detachments where people were doing heavy manual labor. The issues that came up were a lot of the people who were doing this were not manual laborers in their day jobs. They were men of young men of military age, twenty-one to forty years older. So, uh, but for most of them, they weren't manual laborers. A lot of them were, you know, either white collar workers or something like that. So, this wasn't really suited to their their skills that they had developed. Uh, And then this was kind of compounded by issues like supply shortages, food shortages, shortages of building materials, uh, you know, things like that, shortages of medicine and so forth. And the combined effect of these two issues, the skill mismatches with the workers and the inadequate supply and logistics by the the military that was responsible for providing this stuff, uh, was that these units were often not especially productive in terms of getting work done that they just they worked much more slowly than a standard construction you know a, a, a construction company with trained professional manual laborers would 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 do in terms of constructing a road and this was a common issue across basically any type of the external labor detachments like the railroad battalions and the military engineering battalions as well
0: Can you describe the experiences of Jews forced into working in snow removal?
1: So the the duty to do snow removal was first implemented in the winter of 1941, uh, 1941, 42, I should say. So December of 41 through the spring of 42. This was basically done because the external detachments that were doing construction work couldn't continue working in the winter because of the cold and the snow. Uh, so those Jews were then sent back to the cities where they came from and there they were sent to work in snow removal so that they could continue working on something. And they were combined with the Jews working with the, uh, the, the local detachments in those cities. Um, so during those months, they would be responsible for clearing snow from the streets, from the, you know, the, the tram tracks, the train tracks in those areas, um, the experiences of the individuals really kind of depended on the attitudes of the officers that they were working with as well as the attitudes of the local people. Some of the people who whose testimonies I looked at for this, this study said that the people in the cities would, you know, would ridicule them, mock them, even spit on them in some cases, but others recalled that people, you know, that people would, you know, bring them tea or something like that but when it was cold outside. So it really depended on the attitudes of the people that they happened to run into on a daily basis.
0: Can you tell us about order number 965-555?
1: So order 965-555 was part of a larger effort to transform and reform the forced labor system, after 1941 to make it more productive, make it more efficient. Because the organization of forced labor units in 1941 was pretty haphazard. It was essentially trial and error. And the the effect was that it wasn't productive. They didn't get a lot of productivity out of these units. So they wanted to try to reorganize the system so that people would work more productively. Uh, This generally meant consolidating smaller units into larger groups uh, larger groups of laborers; these large units of two, three thousand people, because they were easier to, you know, supervise than having a bunch of spread out smaller units. Um, and they also increased requirements in terms of record keeping, and things like that for the camp or unit commanders, so that the gen- the Romanian general staff, which was responsible for administering this, would have a better idea of what was going on at the ground level. Uh. They also, another big thing here was to seek to limit the exemptions given to forced laborers. So, if a person was working in their normal job, they could ask their employer to petition, say, this person is very much, you know, strictly necessary for the continued productivity and success of my business. I need this person to be allowed to stay and continue working rather than being sent to forced labor. And they would give them an exemption of, you know, for a period of six months, with the intention that they tr- they train, an, a non Jewish person to take that job as part of this overall policy of Romanianization. But as you might imagine, being exempted from forced labor and allowed to stay in your main job, is a highly desirable thing. And as is often the case, that became a source of bribery and corruption. And the person who was essentially the head of jewish affairs in romania a man named radu lecca uh turned this into his kind of own personal fiefdom and greatly enriched himself by accepting bribes in exchange for granting people exemptions and they want the, the general staff wanted to cut down on this because they were losing large numbers of people who would otherwise be useful laborers because they were you know basically able to buy their way out of it so they tried to greatly restrict the categories that were eligible to apply for exemptions. Uh, and this all of these policies in combination had a pretty mixed effect. Uh, they did succeed in increasing the number of people mo- mobilized for forced labor going from about 80,000 to 105,000 by the beginning of 1943. Uh, but the, the system of basically organized corruption in exchange for exemptions continued and the aforementioned issues with people not being suited for the type of work they were doing and the inability to adequately supply the camps with food and medicine and construction supplies and stuff like that meant that the overall productivity of the system was still not great and never really met the military's expectations when they put this policy into place.
0: How does your study recontextualize Romanian German relations during World War II?
1: So, the place of forced labor in the overall narrative of German Romanian relations kind of illus- is a good way to illustrate the place of forced labor in Romania's Jewish policy as they conceived it in 1941. Essentially, it was understood to be an intermediate step in the process, that they were moving on a, a process from legal discrimination to a an eventual quote-unquote permanent solution to the Jewish question, which would mean the physical removal of Jews from Romania altogether. Uh, so forced labor was essentially viewed as an intermediate step to this while they were working out how they were going to carry out that permanent solution. And there were competing plans for this. There was the plan on the Romanian side, the solely Romanian plan, that would have meant transporting them to transnistria which was an area in the occupied soviet union that uh that became essentially an ethnic dumping ground as the commission on the holocaust of romania referred to it uh for people who the Jer- the romanians deemed undesirable jews uh roma people like that con- some communists as well uh and then there was also an ongoing negotiation in 41 and 42 between the germans and the romanians for romania's eventual pr- participation in the German continent-wide final solution to the Jewish question, the deportation of Jews to the the extermination camps. So by fall of 42, there was a a plan in place for the Jews of Romania to be deported to the Belzec extermination camp in Poland. Um, And the plan was basically in place. The Germans were just waiting for the the trains to start rolling. And this never happened. Uh, The reasons for this are still debated, but It basically boils down to this is the point at which the fortunes of the war really turn against the axis. Uh, So the Romanians are starting to face the possibility that we may lose this war. And if we lose the war, we're going to be held accountable for what we did to the Jews. So they shift away from a policy of this, you know, so-called permanent solution, the physical removal of the Jews uh, with a long-term goal of having Jews voluntarily more or less immigrate from Romania Uh, But the effect that this had on forced labor was that it meant that this initially temporary solution essentially became a permanent feature of Romania's Jewish policy, Uh, because now that there's no deportations, the the forced labor units are just going to kind of continue to exist indefinitely. And this drew criticism from the Germans who were trying to pressure them, continuing to try to pressure them into deporting the Jews to to uh, And the Germans openly criticized forced labor as this kind of half measure uh that, that fell short of meeting the you know the eventual permanent solution. But ultimately the plans to deport Jews to the to Belgets from Romania never materialized. So forced labor continued to be part of Romania's Jewish policy all the way up until the, the coup d'etat that overthrew the Antonescu government in August of 1944.
0: What forms of torture, atrocity, coercion, and punishment did Jewish forced laborers endure? So
1: on paper, forced laborers were subject to the same disciplinary rules and regulations as normal army soldiers would have been. And at that time, Romania did allow corporal punishment of soldiers. So corporal punishment was considered an acceptable recourse both for commanders of ordinary military units and for commanders of forced labor units and this was applied in some cases although not universally Uh, in practice there were a lot of cases where people were subject to physical and verbal abuse above and beyond what the regulations allowed people being beaten for allegedly not working fast enough or uh you know for perceived insubordination and stuff like that but again this really varied from place to place depending on the attitudes of the romanian officers overseeing the the laborers uh so i in in the case of one memoirists uh his testimony from working in the area in western romania near arad he said that the first commander he had was an ethnic german with an engineering background who treated the workers with respect and particularly treated him with respect because he had engineering training, uh, but and didn't abuse them or anything like that. But then he was sent to another place where the commander said, I'm going to call you by your number and not your name. Animals don't have names. Why should you have a name? Uh, and that, you know, that they were subject to physical and verbal abuse there. Um, so, it just varied from place to place and a lot of it had to do with the attitudes of the individual romanian officers and soldiers who were overseeing the laborers um if they you know had a more hardline anti-semitic fascist sort of outlook then usually the laborers who were working for them would be treated a lot worse uh although i should note that there were a few cases in which uh officers were actually punished for mistreating their workers um this was really not like a humanitarian thing, or even really a like, hey, don't beat people. So that you know, we want them to work productively. Don't beat them. It was a, it was generally basically a, a PR thing. Like, the most notable case I found was one where an officer was actually put into, uh, to prison by the military police because he was, you know, hitting and cursing at workers in a local detachment in Bucharest, and he was doing this outside of like a school. And the, you know, the teachers and the children, you know, witnessed him beating and cursing at these people. And they said, yeah, we can't, we can't have you doing that. And they put him in jail and replaced him with somebody else. So it was, you know, in the external detachments, there was a lot less centralized control. So, you know, there were generally not going to be punishments for mistreating workers like that. But I should add also that there was not, um, there was not widespread killing of people either. Like, you don't have... uh, you know, what would happen in, you know, German labor camps or eventually in the case of the Hungarian laborers, you don't have people just being shot for, you know, minor perceived infractions. That really wasn't the case.
0: Can you compare and contrast the lived experiences of Romanian forced laborers with Hungarian forced laborers doing during the Holocaust? What were the similarities and differences between the experiences that hungarian jewish forced laborers underwent and romanian jewish forced laborers underwent so
1: the hungarian system forced labor was actually very similar in structure to the the romanian system it was uh, again jews were excluded from the hungarian military by anti-semitic legislation and instead of serving in the military they would have to do uh, forced labor service uh, the hungarian system actually predated the romanian system it was created in 1939 which is when a lot of the anti-semitic laws in hungary were passed uh, so the forced labor system in hungary had already been operating for a while before the romanians even started organizing jewish forced labor but the structure was very similar it was done under the auspices of the military generally structured as you know essentially military units of forced laborers Uh, But really the big difference here and the real deciding factor for the fate of Jewish forced laborers in Romania in general is that in Hungary, when the Hungarian Second Army was sent to the Eastern Front to serve alongside the German and other Axis forces, they sent a large group of forced laborers with them, uh, you know, 50,000 forced laborers along with them to do various kinds of military engineering and frequently they were sent to do the most dangerous possible tasks: clearing mines, cutting barbed wire, uh, digging trenches, doing stuff right in the immediate vicinity of the front, which produced a lot of casualties. And then, really, the big thing was that when the Hungarian Second Army was encircled and basically destroyed at the Battle of Ronish in uh, the early the early winter of forty three. Uh, The the Hungarian Second Army is basically destroyed. These labor units are also basically destroyed. A lot of them are killed in in combat. A lot of others are taken prisoner by the Soviets, uh, and a lot of them didn't fare very well. And then those who survived and retreated along with the Hungarian troops, uh, the Hungarian troops massacred thousands of forced laborers as they were in the process of retreating. Uh, So the end result was that about 33,000 people uh, of the Hungarian forced laborers died in occupied the occupied Soviet Union while serving uh, as essentially, you know, combat engineers with the uh, the Hungarian second army. Romania ultimately decided not to do this. Uh, this was debated in the winter of 43 in the gap between the main forced labor campaign in 1942 and the beginning of forced labor in 1943 and the external detachments, uh, so there was this debate over whether they should send jewish laborers to the front with the romanian units of course by this time uh romania the, the battle of stalingrad was coming to an end the romanian third and fourth armies had been badly badly battered by the soviets at that point uh and the the prospect of you know being defeated in the war was looming over them and they, there was actual explicit mention of the fact that this wouldn't go over well internationally if we did this uh And this was in the wake already of the decision not to deport the Jews to Belgec, which happened in uh, September and October of 42. So they'd already consciously decided against that. And ultimately, they consciously decided against sending Jewish laborers to the front as well. And this was really the big determinant because this is the big difference between Romania and Hungary. And that's why Hungary, you know, well over 30,000 forced laborers died. And in Romania probably fewer than a thousand people died performing forced labor at least under the military system that's the the decision not to send them to the front like they did in hungary is really the big inflection point
0: can you describe the various massacres of jews in romania
1: right so within romania proper uh there were only a few massacres carried out by romanian forces uh The first of these was in 1940 in the city of Dorohoy in northeastern Romania, which occurred when, uh, under the secret provisions of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the Soviet Union annexed uh, Bessarabia-Bukovina, northern Bukovina, which are part of present-day Moldova and Ukraine. Uh, The Retreating German troops carried out a massacre in the city of Dorohoy, which is in northeastern Romania, near to what was then the border with the Soviet Union uh so that was the first massacre and then the second large massacre in romania proper occurred during the legionnaires rebellion in january of 1941 so from september of 1940 to january of 41 Tonescu was governing in this kind of uneasy partnership with the fascist iron guard or which is the official name is the legion of the archangel michael but they're often referred to as the iron guard uh they were Governing in this kind of uneasy coalition. But in January of 1940, the Iron Guard tried to stage a coup d'etat and overthrow Antonescu so they could have sole power. Uh, but the military remained loyal to Antonescu because he was a uh, Romanian general. He, they remained loyal to him and they put down the, the rebellion. Within a few days, but during the rebellion, the Iron Guard massacred about 125 Jews in Bucharest uh, and burned synagogues and things like that, uh, destroyed Jewish businesses. Uh, and Then fi- the last big one in Romania was the the Yash Pogrom, uh, which was by far the largest massacre in Romania, which took place right at the beginning of the war with the Soviet Union. Uh, thousands of Jews were massacred in the city and hundreds more died in trains that were basically just taken out of the city and just traveled around the countryside for weeks at a time without or a week or so i should say without food or water anything like that the so-called death trains uh most of the largest massacres carried out by romanian forces actually took place in the occupied soviet union either during the initial invasion when there was a policy that Antonescu referred to as cleansing the land uh, which was basically just the mass murder the mass shooting of jews in the in a similar way to what would be done by the German Einsatzgruppen in the USSR. Uh, And then there were large massacres in, most notably, the city of Odessa. Uh, After their occupation, the Romanians, uh, Soviet partisans planted a bomb that destroyed the Romanian army headquarters there and killed something like 60 or 70 Romanian troops, officers and troops. Uh, So in reprisal for that, the Romanians massacred about 25,000 Jews in Odessa, 25,000 is a minimum figure. It could have probably been as high as 34,000, 35,000. And then there were several ghettos and concentration camps in Transnistria where Jews were sent, both local Ukrainian Jews and Jews deported from Bessarabia and Bukovina were sent and massacred there, the largest being the massacre that took place at, of the Bogdanova camp at the end of December of 1941, where about 50,000 people were killed. But most of these massacres took place outside of Romania proper, and they were mainly in 1941 and the earlier part of 1942.
0: What does your book teach us about Romanian economic history during World War II?
1: So it I alluded to this earlier, but it illustrated the, the folly of the process of Romanianization, essentially uh, the leader of the Romanian Jewish community, a guy named Wilhelm Filderman, referred to the economic policies of the Antonescu regime that were d- directed against Jews as the country quote unquote cutting off its nose to spite its face essentially uh so the Romanian economy especially since the start of industrialization in the second half of the 19th century uh you know Jewish uh professionals doctors engineers uh Jewish merchants and Jewish industrialists played an important role in the Romanian economy. And this was a target for anti-Semites who claimed that, you know, Jews were usurping the rightful place of non-Jewish Romanians in those areas. But the fact of the matter was that there weren't enough non-Jewish Romanians who were qualified to do those jobs. And when the Antonescu regime started trying to exclude Jews from those jobs, they quickly found out that they, for you know, that they were basically forced by economic Necessity to not follow through on that policy because there are just more people available to replace all of those skilled workers and professionals, uh, which led to what I discussed earlier, the system of exemptions from forced labor that uh, became a source of, you know, corruption and abuse, but also, uh, again, illustrated the fact that so many of these people were necessary for the basic functioning of Romanian businesses uh, and and so the Romanians couldn't fully carry out this process of Romanianization because the level of development of the economy just wasn't there, and the level of skilled laborers and professionals just wasn't there for them to be able to say, "All right, all of the Jews are removed, we're replacing you with ethnic Romanians," because or non-Jewish ethnic Romanians, I should say, it just wasn't possible. So it illustrated the the complete folly of the economic policy that was directed against. The Jews, And this was kind of the the subject I was interested in exploring when I first started reading and writing about this subject was how far can you push ideological policy, a policy that's based on ideology rather than on hard data. How far can you push that before you get to a point where your needs, the needs of your economy, the needs of your military kick in and you can't, you know, How far can you go before you run into the risk of violating your basic economic needs, essentially? And this system illustrated that Romania was very limited in terms of how much it could implement a purely ideologically driven policy without harming the Romanian economy. So forced labor ended up being kind of a worst of both worlds situation where they tried and failed to remove Jews from prominent positions in the economy but the system that they created in parallel the forced labor system also wasn't productive from an economic standpoint for the reasons which I discussed earlier so they really so they, the description of cutting off their own nose despite their face is really pretty accurate
0: what is your book's contribution to holocaust studies and the historiography of the holocaust so
1: the biggest thing, I think, is that it adds to the historiography of forced labor as a phenomenon, as a continent-wide phenomenon. We have a lot of work on forced labor, both Jewish and non-Jewish, in in Germany. We have good, some good work, at least, on the forced labor system in Hungary. Um, but it's interesting to see how Romania does and doesn't fit into the larger conception of Jewish forced labor. Often... Forced labor for Jews, especially in Germany, is discussed in terms of what's referred to as extermination through labor, Vernichtung durch Arbeit, uh, where where forced labor for Jews wasn't just an intermediate step in the killing process, but also a a part of the killing process in and of itself, that they were deliberately working people to death. Uh, More recent scholarship has suggested that that's overly simplistic, that There were different reasons for Jewish forced labor being imposed, that different parts of the Nazi bureaucracy had different interests that dictated why they supported using Jews as forced labor. But the overall paradigm of extermination through labor is still there. Uh, And then in the case of Hungary, you obviously have that in the case of the Jewish laborers who were sent to the Eastern Front. But in the case of Romania, you have a policy that was explicitly conceived as a transitional step in the process of moving from discrimination to genocide. Uh, this was discussed explicitly in documents. There are documents from December of forty-one, for example, assessing the progress of forced labor that was made in nineteen forty-one. That, dis- that explicitly said, "This is this is still just an intermediate step. We're working towards the." Quote, unquote, permanent solution to the jewish question and this is our intermediate step uh so this really i think that it offers a, a different perspective on the evolution of genocide like the actual process of genocide how you go from discrimination to killing and what the steps along that process are because the process proceeded at a different pace in romania and with a different uh you know, ideological and economic conception in Romania that it did in Germany, and I think that this is just a this is a direction that the history the history is going to just need to continue on because there are other cases that aren't well studied, like uh, Slo- Slovakia, for example. Uh, Bulgaria had a system similar to the Romanian system. Uh, in Bulgaria was similar in that the Jews living in Bulgaria proper, at least, were not deported to the extermination camps, as was the case in Romania. So there might be some useful parallels there, but nobody's really published anything on Bulgaria. So there's – it's just we need to keep doing this work, keep adding new cases so that we can draw these parallels and these comparisons uh, especially outside of Germany, right? Especially in countries where Germany was not occupying them and dictating Jewish policy, because it, it it illustrates both the larger phenomenon of forced labor, but also the evolution of Jewish policies in those countries. And those are both areas where we just kind of keep need, need to keep working and keep making progress, because it presents a more complex and more nuanced picture of the phenomenon of forced labor in general.
0: What What new insights does your study present regarding the Yash Pogrom?
1: So I didn't really focus on the Yash Pogrom in my book. The main thing that I think is interesting is what happened to the people who were deported from Yash, who were not killed, who were just sent to the internment camps in Romania because a lot of those deportees ended up in the internment camps along with the people who were deported from other areas near the front. So it's an interesting bit of the after history of that of that event, essentially, because a lot of the people who were deported were afraid that when they got there, they were going to be killed and were almost relieved to find out that they were basically just going to be doing, you know, forced labor. So most of them were sent to those, to the internment camps that were there in 41 and then closed after that. Uh, forced labor wasn't the primary purpose of those camps. They were principally just, you know, internment camps. Uh but the the Jews of military age or of working age there were generally forced to do some type of work, even though that wasn't the primary purpose of the camps. So it does show that, you know, that there is this sort of after history of the pogrom for the people who weren't killed in it.
0: Can you describe the experiences of Jewish forced laborers dispatched to serve the Romanian army at war against the Soviet Union?
1: So the Romanian forced laborers weren't sent with the troops to the front lines they weren't sent along with the army in the way that hungarian laborers were but they were working primarily for the interest of the army in really in general but especially in the the units that were put in what was formerly you know part of the soviet union, territories in the soviet union occupied by romania and these the, the condition the, the trend that i've kind of identified there is the conditions in these camps further east are generally harsher. Uh, they're, you know, part of this is the fact that they're away from central supervision from Bucharest, right? You get further away from the center, there's less centralized supervision. Conditions tend to be harsher, the treatment of the prisoners tends to be worse. Um, there's also this interesting phenomenon that's been identified by other scholars like Diana Dimitru, who's worked on Transnistria and the borderland areas where there's this different perception amongst the Romanians of, you know, Romanian-speaking Romanian Jews versus the local, uh, the local Jewish populations in the occupied Soviet Union that generally were, you know, Ukrainian or Russian, you know, and spoke Ukrainian and Russian or Yiddish. Uh, there was this feeling that the Romanian Jews were quote unquote our Jews versus the Jews in the occupied Eastern Territories who were perceived as foreign. So there's some reasoning that they create, they create, they treated those Jews much worse than, than they did the Romanian, like quote, the quote unquote, our Jews. Uh, I didn't really get into this in my book that much just because I wasn't really focused on Transnistria. That's uh, the forced labor. There wasn't entirely organized by the military and I was really focused on the military labor service system. So I didn't get into it in that much detail. Um, that's an area that still needs to be studied. Uh, I, there's not much in English on that. There's one study on it in Romanian, but it's not a complete survey of forced labor in Transnistria. So that's an area that needs that needs more work, really, because those uh, the, the experiences of Jews working in those camps haven't really been fully
0: elucidated uh, fully yet. To the extent of your knowledge, were the Sinti and Roma in Romania subjected to similar forced labor as Jews? How were their experiences similar or different?
1: so there was there wasn't a systematic policy concerning roma um however uh there are cases that came up where people who were roma i were either misidentified as jews or just sent along with them for reasons that weren't clear and the the, the camp or detachment commanders would report back and say uh that you know there's a group of roma here that were sent along with the, the jewish laborers what should we do with them so should we put them to work should we you know, should we deport them somewhere else? Uh, Because about 25,000 Roma who were considered to be quote-unquote itinerant Roma or, you know, accused of being quote-unquote criminals in some sense uh, were deported to Transnistria from Romania proper. Uh, About 11,000 of them died uh, after being deported. So there was a partial policy of deportation, but there wasn't a systematic policy of sending Roma to forced labor in the way that there was for jews
0: what forms of disease did jewish forced laborers succumb to
1: so mainly the 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 main problem in a lot of cases was malaria especially in the summer months um because the treatment wasn't available in the more uh, you know remote areas where the external labor detachments were working at that time uh so that was common. Uh, diseases that were common in concentration camps like typhus and typhoid were not as common. Uh, illnesses caused by you know, inadequate nutrition, dysentery and stuff like that were somewhat common just because the prisoners were frequently not receiving adequate food. Uh, so you had those kinds of issues as well. Um, there were actually a couple of examples I came across of people who were apparently bit by rabid dogs or I claim to have been Uh, and there was some speculation on the part of the Romanian commanders that, you know, they're faking this so that they can go to the hospital and get out of work. But I thought that was a strange thing to say because especially back then being treated for rabies was really painful. It was, you know, a series of like really painful shots that were injected into your abdomen. So I don't know why anybody would fake that as a way to get out of work. There are better things to fake basically. But yeah, the, the most common one that comes up is uh, is malaria in the summer months due to the presence of mosquitoes.
0: Where would Jewish forced laborers sleep?
1: So for the Jews in the local labor detachments, they were allowed to go sleep at home uh, mostly. There were a couple cases where they were assigned particular quarters, like in the case of the Kotrachin shooting, rant, uh, shooting range in Bucharest, uh, where there was a, a fixed camp where they had to sleep instead of being allowed to sleep at home. Uh, And when that was done, it was usually because people were going home and then not actually showing up the next day. And it was kind of regarded as a privilege that they would revoke if people didn't, you know, hold up their end of the bargain by coming back to work the next morning. Uh, In the case of the external labor detachments, usually there was a semi-permanent camp type of structure with barracks and stuff like that uh, that was constructed near the work site. The problem with that ended up being that for things like roads and railroads, you know, you're continuously building the road and the railroad. So you're getting further and further away from where that initial worksite was. So the distance that you had to cover every day to get to where you were working was always increasing. And this created problems because it took, you know, time that would have usually been spent working was instead dedicated to, you know, walking to and from the worksite. And, you know, that people would get tired walking to and from work so they didn't work as productively as they did when they didn't have to walk that distance so it created this kind of kind of problem that there wasn't a good solution for essentially so that was yeah and then the other issue was that the delivery of construction materials housing or for housing like wood and stuff like that was not always the best so people ended up sleeping in tents or in some cases even under the open sky you know for weeks at a time even while they were waiting for for wood to be delivered so that they could build barracks basically.
0: How does your study advance our understanding of slavery? How can the history and lived experiences of Jewish forced laborers in Romania complement or challenge scholarly and popular assumptions about the character and nature of slavery?
1: So I try to steer clear of direct comparisons between Jewish forced labor and like chattel slavery, it was, as was practiced in the United States. Those are, they're different enough in terms of the circumstances that I don't think one-to-one comparisons are necessarily a good idea, just because, you know, there's a difference in someone who has been conscripted to work in the mil- by the military, essentially versus somebody who is the property of an individual and is required to, you know, work for them as long as that person owns them. Uh the, those are two very different sets of circumstances. If you look at Jews who are working in, you know, like the forced labor camps in Germany or the concentration camps and things like that, that's a bit of a different situation. But again, you still have the distinction between something that's being imposed as a matter of state policy versus the Uh, you know, people being the property of a single person. Uh, So the dynamics are different enough there that I generally steer clear of those comparisons just because I don't know if uh, I I feel like there's enough of a difference there to make those comparisons, you know, kind of, kind of problematic.
0: Can you describe the forced labor of Jews in the oil producing regions of Romania?
1: So this is actually an interesting case. Uh, In general, the idea was that they didn't want Jews doing forced labor there because this is a sensitive area in terms of national security. Right. This is very important for the military. Romania was providing between a quarter and a third of, um, you know, a quarter and a third of the Axis powers, total oil uh, production, essentially during the war so this was very important it was very sensitive the germans devoted a lot of resources to building anti-aircraft defenses in that area so they didn't want people that they perceived as untrustworthy to be in that area but the interesting thing that happens is that in the fall of 41 there's a group of uh soviet prisoners of war who were sent to uh that area Brahova county mainly near the city of ployash which was the center of romania's oil industry Word of that got back to Antonescu and he said, No, we can't have that. We can't have Soviet prisoners working in that area. Send them away, replace them with Jews. So there's this interesting dynamic that goes back to what I was talking about earlier about the perception of Romanian Jews as quote unquote our Jews, even to people who were, you know, avowed anti-Semites for, you know, participating in the Holocaust. So they considered Romanian-born Jews to be more trustworthy than non-Jewish Soviet POWs, so they replaced them with with Jews. Uh, There still wasn't a large number of people, though, that the preference was generally not to use Jewish labor in that area due to the perceived security risks that it brought. But that that dynamic I thought was actually pretty interesting. Just uh, as I was working on some some issues relating to uh, Soviet POWs in Romania.
0: What new perspectives are presented in your study regarding the Belzets concentration camp?
1: So, I didn't focus on Belzec itself. Mainly, I discussed Belzec as the de- the destination for where Romanian troops would be deported to. Um, mainly, I was discussing it not for the sake of discussing the deportations themselves, but because that was what was developed as the "quote unquote" permanent solution, uh, and that forced labor would be the intermediate step on the way to that solution. So I discussed it in that context, but I wasn't really exploring it for the sake of exploring Belzec itself. Uh, so I don't have a lot to add to to the history of Belzec itself, unfortunately.
0: How did Romanian Jewish forced laborers cope with winter weather conditions? So
1: for. Th- In a lot of cases, the external labor detachments were dissolved in the winter and people would just come back in the spring. Uh, They didn't want to, you know, they couldn't really work because A, the ground was covered in snow and B, they couldn't collect enough winter clothing for the prisoners. So this was a common concern, even outside of winter, that the prisoners, uh, because they were recruited and, you know, sent to forced labor kind of haphazardly they just kind of had whatever they were wearing or whatever they were able to grab and take with them, uh, which often wasn't appropriate for the conditions where they'd be working. So people didn't have adequate winter clothing. And this meant that people got, you know, got frostbite and stuff like this. And this just further compounded the other issues that were kind of, you know, plaguing the forced labor system at that time. So in a lot of cases, the decision was just to dissolve the detachments because even beyond the snow, they just weren't able to really do anything. Uh so we know that there were a lot of cases where people were you know frostbitten and suffered from exposure and stuff like that just because they didn't have adequate winter clothing because they didn't bring it with them. Uh and there were cases where they actually discussed hey should we let people go home and get clothes and come back and there was this back and forth about well what if they don't come back can we trust them to come back and they also had a policy of allowing or having the Jewish community essentially uh that people that weren't doing forced labor pool uh winter clothing so that it could be sent to the Jews in the forced labor camps. This was also done for Jews who were deported to Transnistria. Uh, They would collect winter clothing for them and stuff like that. So they followed a similar policy.
0: Can you tell us about the experiences of female victims of forced labor and what ways did women suffer differently than men?
1: So women were not used in, for the most part at least, not used in like heavy manual labor. Generally, women who were recruited, and there were a few thousand of them at the peak in 1943, uh, mainly recruited for things like working in textiles and, you know, doing uh, what would be considered, quote unquote, you know, conventional women's work in the military, cleaning uniforms, repairing uniforms and stuff like that, or stuff that's lighter manual labor, like painting buildings and stuff like that. Um, there, The problem I ran into is that I didn't find a lot of testimonies that were from female forced laborers, so their experiences were not recorded in the way that the experiences of male forced laborers were partially just because there weren't as many of them. Uh, So unfortunately, I wasn't able to go as much into the unique experiences of female forced laborers as I would have liked to, just because I didn't have that firsthand testimony, but I was at least able to talk about it from, you know, kind of a policy perspective. Here's when women started to be recruited. Here's what they were sent to do and stuff like that.
0: How does your study recontextualize the Antonescu regime in Romania?
1: So uh, it mainly, I think that this gets into, again, the sort of push and pull of economic policy versus racial ideology in situations where they were you know how that how the regime was essentially constrained in its actions by the um by the economic needs of the country when it was trying to implement these policies of Romanianization. Uh Antonescu himself is a strange figure in the there were cases where he, he, you know, he actually visited forced labor camps himself and saw people basically, you know, walking around with no shoes on or without adequate clothing. And he's like, what are y'all doing? Why are why do we not have why don't these people have adequate clothing? What? How do you expect people to work productively like this? Uh, so he was fairly demanding in terms of some of the reforms that were attempted in 1942-43. Not really out of humanitarian concern, but more out of concern for how do we make this more productive? Because right now we're not. This is not creating the desired benefits. How do we make this work better? Uh, So he was kind of, it illustrates the ways that he kind of did have his hand in the day-to-day aspects of uh, anti-Semitic policy in Romania beyond just, you know, his debates around his role in the implementation of the Holocaust proper, the mass murder of Jews by Romanians, which the Romanians killed something like a quarter of a million Jews overall, but... It's 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 more of a look into his role in the policies that weren't focused around deportation and killing the policies that affected the Jews living in Romania proper, where most of the pre-war Jewish population survived, despite the fact that they were subject to discrimination and things like forced labor. So it's just it's it, it's more it's more context for his relationship with policy towards. The Romanian Jews.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this book?
1: So, the first thing I kind of went to after this was uh, uh, looking at Soviet POWs in Romania because I had been doing some research on Soviet POWs, you know, as part of my day job, basically, uh, researching the experiences of Soviet POWs in Germany, which is uh, a, a very under researched topic in itself. Uh, but there was nothing on Soviet POWs in Romania, basically. So I wrote an article on that recently. Um, but now I've moved on. I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on now. One is on the post-war trials in Romania, collecting documents from that and translating those and presenting those as part of a larger view of the different ways that, that European countries processed uh, war crimes after the war, basically. How each country took undertook the process of prosecuting and investigating and convicting and dealing with war criminals in their countries. So I've been working on a lot of those types of records. I'm also doing on my own a much larger, longer term project looking at Soviet, the treatment of Soviet POWs in general, kind of expanding on, on what I did with the Romanian POW. So that's, that's kind of my bigger, longer term uh, area of interest right now.
0: I wish you the very best. That sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Thank you. As we end today's dialogue, I'm signing off as your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dallas Mickelbacher. He is an applied researcher at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. We've been discussing his newly published book, Jewish forced labor in Romania, 1940 to 1944, published in Bloomington by Indiana University Press, 2020. Thank you.